Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy, my partner in crime, with me. How you doing, Darcy? Hey, I'm good. It's been so long since we've talked and recorded. I know, right? It's been almost a month or something I like that. I think it has been a month. It's been so long. I took a fabulous vacation. You went out to Cali. Yeah. <laughs> Spent some so time jolly. sitting on my butt by the pool and enjoying myself, nice. and it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. And all the puppies that you got to see? Holy moly, there were a lot of dogs. At one point, there were six of awesome. them. <laughs> it was just like I was in puppy heaven. That's amazing. Yeah. And I got to meet, um, there's this woman that I've been talking to for a while now. It's really weird. We met over Instagram and this was shortly after my dog passed away. I Mm -hmm. just was kind of bummed out and stuff. And I kept getting these ads for Chewy because they don't know that your dog has passed away. And there was this one toy that I just thought was so cute. It was like a volcano with little chewy dinosaurs coming out of it. And like Aww. like stuffed dinosaurs. They were so cute. And I was like, I just want to see a doggy play with this toy. Aww. And so I like posted something that was like, hey, you know, I'll send this out to whoever responds first for free. You just got to be comfortable with them having your address and just let me yeah. know and I'll send it to you. As long as you promise to take videos of your dog with <laughs> this and then share it with me. And this woman responded. She had a Brussels scruff on. And she said, I'll take it. And I was like, okay. So I sent her the toy and she immediately sent me pictures of her dog. And he like cuddles these dinosaurs and goes to sleep with them. It is literally the cutest thing ever. I just love it so much. And she lives up in southern, like uh, northern southern California. So right. I came to California and I told her, hey, I'm going to be in town. I realized it's like an hour and a half, two hours drive. But if you want to come. Is she like north of L.A.? Yeah. Oh, OK. Um, if you want to come visit, like I would love to see you or I can meet you halfway or whatever. So yeah. she ended up saying, no, we'll drive down. Um, oh. And so she brought her two dogs and her sister and they met us and we all had a doggy play date and it was just so much fun like i can't even it was just the cutest thing that's the best they're so small and just so cute they're almost like they're a little bit bigger than yorkies yeah but they look like schnauzers but they have beards and they're just the funniest dogs they just had the most amazing personalities and they fit along so well with the puggles that i was there with and it was just so much fun so I just That's awesome. got all the doggy good stuff until my little heart my was content. My dog has started a new thing where she started watching TV. Like, and if she sees an animal, oh. like any animal, she'll bark. So if you hear barking, like muffled barking, it's because my dog is watching TV upstairs. Oh, how funny. Because so, she's not smart. And like the TV is like up against the wall that's like the outside of the house, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um. And so what she'll do is she'll like, she'll bark at the TV and then she'll run out the dog door and like, like it's like the TV's a window. Like she's going to find the animal outside. Oh my God, how funny. Yeah, she's not, she tries so hard. One of the white fluffy dogs that you, that I used to yeah. invite you over, he used to do the same thing. Anytime there was any animal on TV, he would just go berserker. Oh, I remember that. Yes. It's crazy butt. I do remember that. Yeah, he's a wild one. But, and that yeah. has been doggy hour. Yay. <laughs> now back to I true crime. I could do crime. that forever. <laughs> so um, there's been a lot going on with the Elizabeth Theranos or excuse me, Dude. the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos trial going on right so now. So much. So evidently, um, her 
former partner, Ramesh Balwani, had requested seats at her trial. This was the big news. Um, and was denied. He wanted to have kind of a heads up. It was funny because the reason that he was arguing for the right to have the seats is the same reason the judge denied him. Because <laughs> he's like a de- co-defendant. Basically. And yeah. he wanted to see the trial saying it was his right so that he could prepare adequately for his own trial. And the judge was like, no, I'm not going to let you sit in on this, get all the good stuff and all the tips yeah. and tricks and find out all that she's using and then go use it yourself. You can't do that. That's not fair. So he denied the request to have the seats at this trial. Yeah. Um, this is, I guess this last week was the second week of the fraud trial. Um, there were revelations about finances. There was whistleblower testimony. And then there was that request by Ramash Balwani's counsel for seats mm-hmm. in, the, in the courtroom. But um, Judge Davila didn't explain why he denied Balwani's request, but it was denied nonetheless. Um, he will have to wait in the first come, first serve line like everyone else, they said. So he didn't <laughs> deny him access to the trial at oh, all. He just so he didn't. he can go. He can go if he wants to sit and stand in line like everybody hmm. else to have seats in the, in the courthouse. So he wasn't necessarily banned from it, but he was demanding that it was his right. And was, the judge was like, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, there was a juror that was excused, which is a big thing, um, on uh-huh. Tuesday of this last week or the week before last for financial hardship. Which um, is interesting. They really, when you're in a jury trial and you're serving in, a, in that kind of thing, those trials can last for months sometimes. Yeah. And they don't pay. They really don't pay. If somebody has a normal job on the outside and then they go in, it's, you know, $50 a day or something ridiculous. Right. It's not anywhere comparable to even unemployment. So it's just like it's a paltry sum. And there are a lot of people that probably feel the same way. As much as they want to participate, they're taking time off work to do that. And mm-hmm. the, the pay is not, you know that desirable I, I do think it should be a little bit higher if you're having to yeah I agree work for it and especially the ones that last <clears> longer because like most you know in most everyday court cases where you're getting called to a jury your case might your trial might last two to three days maybe a week but like this is such a high profile one that it's obviously going to take a lot longer yeah and I mean I mean some employee employers do pay for jury yeah. time um, but I think the vast majority of them probably do not at this point. I don't, yeah, they don't have to. They don't have that in the budget. And, yeah. you know, I don't think that there's a huge number of people getting called for jury duty. But in any case, she was excused for that, which is good. I'm glad they let her out because mm-hmm. that, that's that's got to be hard. I guess she was saying she yeah. needed to support her mother, which is even mm. more significant. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some revelations about the finances of Theranos. Um, I guess the financial controller spoke and had testimony telling the jury about losses of $585 million by 2015. And then also speaking to the fact that she was spending about $2 million per week. What? uh, Salaries for employees. I'm I'm not sure Uh. what that $2 million. I'm sure they spoke to that um, when they gave the testimony. But they also talked about the projected values of the stock and the company in 2013 Mm. and then how low they had dropped later. Um, there were doc- there were documents shared with um, respect to investors with projected amounts of the company and just sort of valuing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was whistleblower testimony from a former lab worker testifying that she saw that their blood machines, blood testing machines, often failed quality control tests. I think there's some uh, there's some theory going around that the people that were testifying were basically saying that Elizabeth 
Holmes knew that this was a failure and they're just demonstrating the fact that she knew that by their testimony of saying, hey, we were in the labs every day. We brought Mm -hmm. our concerns to Balwani or to Holmes or to both of them and the feedback was you're not qualified to make these kind of calls, get back to work kind of a thing and just kind of covering it up. Yeah. Um, This particular whistleblower that was testifying ultimately quit and she filed a complaint with the Centers for Medicine and uh, Medicaid Services. This is the the portion of the government which regulates clinical labs. Um, She also Mm. spoke to a Wall Street Journal reporter and this is when the story broke about the Theranos scandal. Has she been identified? Because in the news stories, I kept just seeing... Oh, she has. Yes. Because I kept just seeing whistleblower, and I wasn't sure if we knew her name. Her name is Erica Chung. Okay. Um, But I can understand why she might want to keep her name confidential, but when you're testifying in a big trial like this, I don't think that that is allowed anymore. But um, evidently she testified... Yeah, I don't know. I know they have some whistleblower protections, but, like, maybe that doesn't apply in this case. I don't know. Well, I know that they came down on her hard, and the Theranos lawyer sent her a letter afterwards saying that they were going to sue her for her disclosing confidential information Mm. in violation of probably an NDA or confidentiality agreement with them. Um, There's also some scientists within Theranos that reported that she knew the machines weren't ready for Walgreens when she was trying to get them kicked out. They were trying to roll them out to the Walgreens store at a certain yeah. point, and I think they just rushed it, and she knew there were reliability issues and told the staff to go ahead with the rollout anyway. And then this concerned citizen that's named in court paperwork was actually revealed to be Hansen, named Hansen, but he turned out to be Bill Evans, the father of Holmes' partner, NPR reported. So... A lot going on this week. I think just a lot of testimony will be happening in the next couple of weeks about former employees, both good and bad, coming out to speak to the fact that they went to her with information and she either denied it or pretended like she didn't hear it or said, I don't care. We're going forward with this anyway. Right. So it's interesting stuff. And I'm dying to know what's going to happen with this. And then if that will it all reflect on what's going to happen with uh her partner yeah because i mean i did see the other thing i saw that she she is claiming that she was in an abusive relationship with him yes and that he was manipulating her and controlling her and so she is trying to use that as part of her defense too so it will be battered spouse sort of a syndrome type of thing that he influenced her behavior with his coercion right control and the whole theory of coercion as sort of a defense at trial is relatively new for US cases. We talked about coercion with some British cases. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember the case of the woman who ended up killing her, shooting her husband at the table. God, what was her name? Um, that was a British case. Okay. And she no, ended up going it. to jail <laughs> for a brief period. Let me just look that up real quick. So we talked about the Elizabeth Holmes case. July 5th, 2020. So if you want to hear more details about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, go listen to that episode. But if you want to hear a little bit more information about um, coercion and um, gaslighting, we spoke to that in the Sally and Richard Challen episode. And that came out March 22nd, 2020. If that was the one where we actually talked about the definition of gaslighting? Yeah. Um, I do and the, okay. and talking about coercion as a, like yeah. a legal defense. 
um, in saying that somebody either physically or emotionally controlled you, manipulated you, abused you in a way that influenced mm -hmm. your actions. And it's not a popular legal theory here in the U.S. So it should be interesting to see how this plays out within the Theranos Elizabeth Holmes setting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's already hard to prove. And yeah, in this case, there's an extremely I mean, high bar. Yeah, and in this case, like, I hate to say I don't believe that it happened, but in this case, it seems like a pretty convenient defense for her to use, especially because she's on trial first. I mean, she was pretty young. She was, like, what, 18 when she started dating him, and he was an older that's man, true. I think in his 30s or 40s. Yeah, that's true. And groomed her. I think he groomed her. I think she was young and kind of naive and... Not to say that she isn't, you know, she was very smart mm -hmm. and kind of had ambition and drive, but I think there's this older man who's been successful in the business who gets a hold of you and tells you what to wear and tells you how to do your business dealings. And you're young, you don't have a lot of experience, and I think sometimes it's easy to kind of fall into that trap and let yourself be influenced. Right. Do you, do you think that they would still be using that defense if he were going on trial first and she were going on second? I do. I do believe yeah. she would use it regardless. Okay. Um, I think that that's kind of her take on this whole thing, that she wouldn't have done any of this but for his influence on her. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I think it would be interesting to see, like, if the roles were, not the roles were reversed, but if the trials were switched and his trial was first, the defense they I mean, would use, like, strategically, I think it, you know? It only takes you so far, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there are basic moral, legal, and ethical obligations that you have when you work with a company like the one she had, and she clearly left all of that in the dust. Mm -hmm. Is it something that's going to excuse her completely? Hell no. But it might be a mitigating factor that might result in a lesser sentence mm -hmm. if that's something. And I think she's kind of taking advantage, too, of the whole Me Too movement and all of that and trying to garner that sympathy for a certain group of people saying, hey, I was this vulnerable female. He groomed me and I was taken advantage of. Right. So I guess we'll see how yeah. it all plays out. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've read this a lot more about this case than I do. So I, I mean, I guess I shouldn't opine on it, but I just kind of, it seems convenient to me, I guess, is all I'll say. About yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, no doubt. But at the same time, this is, you know, I struggle with the concept of an 18-year-old girl having anything in common with a 30, 40, 50-year-old man. Mm -hmm. what, are, what, are, what are you going to have in common with that person? What is dating that person going to get you? Except potential abuse, grooming, and some sort of a weird situation. Right. Yeah. I struggle with that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, let's jump into the main case for the day. This is a crazy one. Okay. And I don't think you've ever heard of it because I hadn't heard of it until, and this is an Orange County case. Ooh. I hadn't heard about it until I, I read this particular case, some information about it. But right. This is the case of Hussein Nayeri. Okay. So this is a crazy one for sure. It happened in 2012. So it's a relatively recent case, but it happened in Newport Beach to begin with. Mm, fancy. This is a lovely little town. I'm sure you've been to Newport Beach. Or if you've seen the OC. Yeah, it's perched on the coast of Southern California in Orange County. It's an area known for gorgeous sandy beaches, boating, lots of outdoor activity, lots of sun, lots of recreation. Huge houses. Yeah. <laughs> the total area in this, including land and water, is relatively small. It's yeah. only about 52.9 square miles. 
Um, it was once a Native American space inhabited by the Tongva people, but it was colonized in the 1800s by Europeans who forcefully removed the natives. The city was named Newport because it was a new port. <laughs> Get it. So a lot of ships and industry started in that area, and it wasn't until later that it turned into the mecca of high-powered, high-wealth, boating, yachting, and rich people. Yeah, I remember um, like one time driving through like on the, like, the Pacific Coast Highway through Newport, and like yeah. I'm driving past a Tesla dealership, a Porsche dealership, a BMW dealership. Like it was just bonkers. Like yeah. in tiny little it's Newport. It's definitely. It's been ranked in the top ten highest housing prices in the yeah. U.S. for decades, yeah. at least. Um, anyway. This is where Mary Barnes lived with her boyfriend and she recently moved from Florida and she lives with her boyfriend and his roommate who we will call Michael. Okay. Um, and I'll get into the reason why we're not using his real name later, but I'm sure you can guess. Okay. Um, but they lived all together, the three of them in a large house in Newport beach and the roommate Michael had been living in the house for approximately eight months when Mary joined them. Okay. The house was nice, and it was about a block from the beach with four bedrooms and lots of space. Ooh. Michael was friendly and pretty ordinary. She called him kind of a teddy bear type of a guy. He was 28 years old and was in the cannabis business. Okay. So he was a pretty smart guy, and he was savvy enough to pick up on the fact that the medical marijuana trade uh, was picking up after laws changed in California yeah. a, few years, a few, like a decade ago, right? Yeah. He has all the proper papers and licenses and all that good stuff. So he's not doing it under the table. But because this sort of business is illegal federally, mm -hmm. at that time, getting f the funding as a legitimate business enterprise was really hard. And so it was impossible to do business with regular banks. Yeah. So much of it was done with cash. And credit right? unions. Yes. Yeah. So October 2nd, 2012, it's a Monday night and it's early fall. And you know how the typical Southern California evenings go, mm -hmm. warm, clear skies, nice weather, super nice. Perfect. Um, Michael and Mary were alone in the house together. Mary's boyfriend has, had been traveling for work. Okay. Both of them were sleeping on the second floor. Mary was in the master suite and Michael was on a couch in sort of a rec room down the hall. Okay. He doesn't have his own bedroom or he just um, wasn't in I think, his own bedroom. Yeah. He just wasn't okay. in his own bedroom. I think, you know, it's one of those situations where you're watching TV or whatever like and you fall asleep. Out. Yeah. Gotcha. But around 2 AM masked intruders break into the house Ooh. and Michael and Mary don't know who they are, but they know that there were at least two. Okay. Mary feels a gun pressed to her neck Holy and crap. someone, whispers to her right you know she's freaking out at that point they said don't worry this is not about you um anyway uh so he's telling her don't worry but how the heck do you not worry when seriously somebody has a gun at your neck and whispering like yeah. that's so creepy. and breaks into your house in the middle of the night yeah. but these intruders then taped her mouth shut zip tied her hands and feet and blindfolded her holy lord so it's not about you but we're still going to kidnap you and blindfold you and gag you and all that good stuff and how old is she? She's in her 20s? Uh, no, I don't know how she, old she oh. was, but she seems like she was a little older, maybe in gotcha. her 30s or 40s. But Okay. Um, the, the, I watched an episode of Dateline NBC about this too because I was kind of curious about the story mm -hmm. after that, after I did a Google search and saw those ones because I wanted to see what they looked like. And yeah. she looked like she was in her 50s. And, and that was 
I don't know, about a year ago that they filmed it, and it was about 10 years ago that this happened. So she had mm-hmm. to have been in her 40s or, or late 30s when this whole thing happened. But in any case, they pick her up and carry her downstairs. <gasps> and all the while, she hears her roommate Michael crying out as intruders beat him up. Oh, my gosh. And they're asking him where the money is. And I think kind of at first he sort of misunderstood what they were asking for. And he's like, hey, I got two grand in my sock drawer. Go ahead, take it. Like, I'm okay with you taking it. And they say, no, no, that's not what we're looking for. For some reason, they believe he has a million dollar cash kind of a trove buried somewhere. So they think that they're basically like robbing a gun, a drug house. Um, I don't think that they thought they were robbing a drug house. I think someone knew that Michael owned a dispensary. Yeah. And that he had money. That's what I mean. Like, not that they thought they were going to find drugs, but that they knew that this person was involved with drugs and therefore there's a lot of cash on hand. And I'm going to get a little bit further into this exactly why they think this in okay. just a little bit. Okay. Okay. But in any case, they keep asking him about this million dollars. They're like, give us the million dollars. Lead us to where you have this million dollars. And he's a million like, million dollars in cash. I have so no idea money. what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, who has a million dollars cash lying around? Like, it just, none of it makes sense. Yeah. So these intruders drag Michael down the stairs brutally, hitting his head on every step as he's going Mm. down the stairs. Like, he's obviously in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. He has no idea who these men are or what they're talking about when they're asking him for this money. And they load Mary and Michael into a truck, and they determined at that time, Mary and Michael determined there were three men. There was oh. one driving and two in the back seat with the victims oh. or two in the back area. of the, I think it was an SUV. Okay. So then they start to drive and they're beating Michael the entire time with the rubber hose. They're shocking him with a stun gun and they're Jesus. burning him with a blowtorch, like a handheld oh blowtorch. All in an attempt to get him to reveal the location of this mysterious million dollars, which he has no freaking clue what they're talking about. Yeah. And he just keeps telling them, I don't have this. He tells them there's that $2,000 in my sock drawer, and he offers them $100,000 from a safety deposit box. But they want nothing to do with it. They say there's a big payout here, and we want it. You're going to tell us where it is, or we're going to torture you until you tell us. That's like cartel... Seriously. Stuff. Like legit cartel stuff. Yeah. Um, the abuse goes on for hours with this torture seeming like it's never going to end. And Mary is not being beaten or tortured, but she's kind of laying right next to him and she hears the whole thing going on. Okay. The car then slows down and turns onto a gravel road. And both of the victims feel immediate terror because they're like, this is it. They're going to shoot yeah. us and kill us and we're going to be dead. But... The car actually turns out into the Mojave Desert. It's dark, it's quiet, and it's isolated. The two are then dragged out of the car onto the desert floor, and they're a couple feet apart at that point. Both of them are still bound and gagged and blindfolded, and the captors ask one more time about the million dollars, and Michael again says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Then one of the men pulls out a serrated knife. (gasps) And he starts to cut Michael's penis off. No! And as this man is doing it, he is singing. And back and forth and back and forth. Just really, like, crazy. And Mary says that Michael was silent 
during this whole thing. Uh-uh. And presumably he had passed out. I mean, they'd been torturing him for hours. Like, he yeah. probably passed out. And then, once they had finished, they poured bleach all over Michael, trying to remove any evidence, like massive amounts, because they wanted to get rid of any DNA they may have left. Yeah. Then they toss a knife to Mary and tell her she, if she can find it, she can free herself. And then they drive off. So she's blindfolded. She doesn't know where, yeah. where they freaking threw that knife. And so she starts, like, she manages to kind of push her blindfold up a little bit. And the sun is just starting to come up a little. So we're kind of getting dawn going. So it's getting a little light and she finds the knife. And she manages okay. to get her feet free, but she can't get her hands free because they're behind her back. Right. And okay. she looks over at Michael and he kind of groans and she's like, oh my God, thank God he's alive. And she says, I can hear cars from a road. I'm going to go get help. The sun's coming up by then and she's just like, I'm so thankful that we are going to survive this ordeal. And I know I'm going to get somebody and we're going to come back and, and help you. Be patient. Okay. I'll be right back. So she walks barefoot. She has no shoes at that point because they grabbed her out of bed. And she walks to a local road. She couldn't run, but she hears the traffic again from that local highway. And she starts screaming for help. And luckily for the two of them, a police officer is driving by at that exact moment on his way to work. Whoa. Right. How lucky did they get? Seriously. So she flags him down and he immediately sees she's got, you know, her hands zip tied behind her back. Like, this is not good. And she tells him what's going on and he discovers this horrific situation. And luckily this guy is trained and he's on his stuff and he starts taking pictures of her immediately for evidence. And he questions her and they find that that she's got somebody that's still out there in the desert. And she's telling him, we got to go get this guy. We got to get him help. He's hurt really bad. And she shows them where Michael is in a very isolated area. When they get the medical personnel and the police and everybody there, they smell bleach first. It's so pervasive that the paramedics, like, it reeked as they worked on him. They managed to photograph him and began looking for the severed penis. Unfortunately, though, they quickly determined that the the perpetrators must have taken it because they can't find it anywhere. Um, And who would do this? Where are they now? Like, this just doesn't make sense to anyone. Because Michael doesn't recall having any enemies, he's in really bad shape, and he's immediately taken to a hospital as the investigators get to work. And again, the victims have no idea who these people are or why this happened, but law enforcement sets to work canvassing the neighborhood. And luckily, somebody noticed a white pickup truck in the area. And normally, like, neighborhood canvases really aren't all that helpful, according to law enforcement. Yeah. You get a lot of, like, random stuff that is kind of a red herring that t- distracts from, like, the stuff that really needs to be investigated. But yeah. this is crazy. This neighbor actually saw this white truck that was in the neighborhood around the time that this whole thing went down. And she saw workers in construction clothing. And she said they seemed super suspicious. So she wrote down the license plate number. I mean, that's using the, the old noggin right there. Seriously. Because they got so, so lucky with that one. They run the truck license plate and find that it's registered to a man named Kyle Handley. Okay. And they ask Michael if he knows a Kyle Handley, and he does. He lives in the area and is also in the marijuana trade. Kyle... So it's like a rival? No. Kyle had sold Michael product for his dispensary, 
so they had a business relationship and they had also gone to vegas together for a celebratory trip the two had gambled and had some fun together it was something where kyle had been coming into the dispensary for a certain amount of time michael had been doing well with his dispensary and he was like hey let's go celebrate let's go party do you want to come i'll pay for it just come have fun right so this generosity of this person in inviting him actually ended up being a really bad thing because Kyle Handley went on this trip with him and decided this guy has a lot of money. We need to rob him. Mm. We need to figure out where that money is and we need to rob him. So the police then go to find Kyle Handley and they go to his house and he isn't there, but they get a search warrant and they immediately search the house and start videotaping. And they determine right away that it's a grow house, just Mm -hmm. where they grow marijuana, and that Kyle has been raising marijuana. And in the laundry room, they find zip ties just like the ones used on Mary and Michael. Mm -hmm. And in the backyard, they find trash bags with more zip ties and towels covered in bleach. Oh, no. Yeah. So they find the white truck there as well, with the matching license plate, and they smell bleach in the back, and they immediately charge Kyle with um, kidnapping, assault, and aggravated mayhem. Jesus, which is okay. the aggravated mayhem, I guess, is for the cutting off of the victim the torture, yeah. part. But October 6, 2012, um, the first arrest takes place, and they, they find this Kyle Handley guy. Um, and then as they search the truck, they also find a set of blue gloves, blue like rubber gloves, okay. like, like medical, medical gloves. gloves. And okay. they run the DNA from the gloves, and they find it belongs to a man named Hussein Nayeri. But nobody knows That's a familiar name. Nobody knows who this guy is. All right. And Michael has no idea who this guy is. Oh, wait. Kyle Handley knows who this guy is, but Michael has not had any inter- interaction with Nayeri. Wait. Okay. Hussein Nayeri. Okay. He immediately says, uh-uh, that glove was planted. It's not mine. There's no way. They believe that Nayeri was actually the mastermind in the kidnapping and torture of Michael and Mary, even though he claims he was not involved in any way, which, you know, surprise, right. surprise. Most of the time they say, I don't have anything to do with it. They all say that. They're not like, oh, good job, guys. You right. got me. But Nayeri is not squeaky clean. He has a pretty long criminal history. He had been born in Iran, and he came to the U.S. as a small boy. Mm-hmm. His family moved to Fresno. He was kind of upper middle class. His father was a doctor and his mother was a lawyer. He didn't really know English when he first came to this country, but mm-hmm. he learned it fast. He participated in wrestling in school, and he was also known to get in a lot of fights in school. Mm. So kind of a, a controversial sort of a figure. After that, he went into the Marine Corps. Oh, of course. That... He says he wanted to get some structure in his life. That he was and having he problems, and he, yeah, and he thought structure, this would do it for him. He was in the Marines for two years, and he had sort of a specialist position. And I think part of the reason for this is because he was very intelligent, mm-hmm. and he spoke multiple languages. Nice. Yeah, especially Persian. So, like, that will get you far. Right. And if you know that, like, especially yep. during that period of time, you are a very, very valuable commodity. However, being the sort of guy that didn't like rules, he got into a lot of fights, he stole things, he went AWOL, and he actually got a dishonorable discharge. 
Oops. Yeah. But ultimately, he fought to have that changed, and he got a regular discharge instead. So other than honorable, just discharge. Yeah, just a straight discharge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, done with the Marines. Nayeri goes back to Fresno, and he starts working as a waiter in a cafe. It's a okay. Mimi's Cafe, which I think they have in San Diego. I think it's a bigger on the West Coast sort of a, a cafe. cafe. Yeah. Okay. Um, he's 24 at that time. And he meets a young woman who's 16. Her name is Uh-oh. Courtney Shigirian. And how old is he? He's 24. She's 16. Yeah. She, that's gross. He claims she told him she was 18. Nope, that doesn't absolve you of anything. And she claims, no, I didn't say anything. And then I told him I was 16 and he chose to kept, chose to kept seeing me and we developed this relationship. Knowing that her family was disapproving, they did not like it. They wanted her out of that. It was a very intense relationship. Courtney comes from a very good family. They do not approve of this boyfriend. And so she kind of hides it from them. Of course, because that's what every 16-year-old does. Yeah. And kind of as she progresses into this relationship, she finds herself wrapped up in this older, attractive man. Mm -hmm. He's charming. He's manipulative. He's very intelligent. And she kind of finds herself kind of falling into his control. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we spoke earlier, it's this control, coercion, gaslighting, manipulation. I think he was a pro at it. And he was getting her hooked, right? Mm -hmm. So initially, Nayeri was working with Kyle Handley and another man in the marijuana business. Okay. And the business was doing well. And then Nayiri gets into this car accident while driving drunk and kills one of his business partners. Oh, my God. Yeah. The guy dies in this accident. And it was related to the drinking while he's driving, right? So under a cloud of suspicion and possible vehicular manslaughter charges, Nayiri flees to Iran. Oh. Yeah. Takes off. Because Iran does not extradite. No. And we are he not knows friendly this. with Iran. Um, the judge issues an arrest warrant in 2005. Um, but Nayiri stays in Iran for about a year and then sneaks back to the U.S. Okay. At that point, he gets a reduced charge and goes on with his life. Like, he kind of pleads it down and says, you know, I'm really sorry. Moves on. Which wow. is crazy, right? Yeah. By 2008, Nayiri reconnects with Courtney, his former 16-year-old girlfriend, Shigirian. Uh-huh. While she's attending college. And she's actually at this point going to law school, trying to become an attorney. Whoa, okay. Yeah. Good for her. So she's a smart girl too. Like, obviously you have to be to, to go into that field. But uh-huh. the relationship, I think, was starting to get even more controlling and manipulative, though, by that point. Mm-hmm. And she claims he criticized her, tried to separate her from her family. The two fought verbally and physically. And um, she was hiding this relationship completely from her family and friends because she knew they didn't like him. Oh, gosh. That's such a red flag. Yeah. And I, it's like it's, but at the same time, we all know somebody who's been there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. She marries him secretly. Oh, no. Yeah. As if, you know, she didn't get enough from that. She marries him. Um, at one point, the police were called after she was thrown to the ground and threatened with a box cutter. <gasps> she filed charges. But Nayiri got anger management classes and the case was dismissed. Ugh. So this guy, this guy has a really good way of kind of talking himself out of situations. Well, 
yes, but also we just don't take domestic violence as seriously as we should in this country. And it's, I mean, it's gotten better, but especially like then too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and Courtney ended up taking it back. Yeah, which is really common. Yeah. I mean, I think they said something like the average abusive relationship takes seven attempts mm-hmm. to actually make a clean break and leave. Yeah. So that's scary. But yeah. all the while, he's kind of controlling and manipulating her while she's attending law school and pretending to be normal around her friends and family. Ugh. By 2011, Nayeri reconnects with Kyle Handling. Kyle, Kyle Handley, sorry, and begins again in the marijuana business. He starts a grow organization in Long Beach in that house, in a grow house. And Courtney okay. funds everything with her parents' credit card. No. They gave her this card for law school expenses, and she's basically helping it to Courtney. kind of bankroll his marijuana business. Oh, sweetie, no. I know. 2012. That's when this whole thing goes down. Um, Kyle Handley had gone on that trip with Michael earlier in the year and he began at that point to kind of tell Nairi about this money and the two kind of make this plot to take Michael's money okay. to find this stash. I think Nairi becomes convinced that Michael has a stash somewhere. So they start kind of surveying Michael. They put cameras on him and a GPS in his car. Jesus. And they devise this scheme to watch him and see where he's keeping his money. They start tracking him and all of his movements. They're watching him with cameras and all this stuff. And they are watching where his vehicle goes. And Courtney says she's kind of watching him do this because they're married at that point, right? right? And she sees that he's pretty much obsessed with this guy and finding where Michael keeps his cash from this, all the money he's making from this cannabis dispensary. So after watching Michael's move every single day, he makes a trip into the Mojave Desert one day. He sees this guy, this poor unsuspecting dispensary owner, make this trip into the desert. And he's convinced that the money is buried there when he goes on this trip. Oh, okay. In reality, though, this trip was actually a pretty inconsequential excursion to the desert with a friend to look at potential real estate investments. Yeah, but you don't, people don't bury money in the desert. Like, they go to yeah. just rooms in the desert. Yeah. So where he came up with this wild fantasy about buried treasure in the desert is kind of anyone's guess. But they think that it was just this kind of wild imaginings from Nayeri. Yeah. But before the police can grab him, they try to pull him over in a traffic stop because they're starting to suspect and, and try to... They're making these connections. Yeah. And... He leads the police on a high-speed chase that ends in him fleeing the vehicle on foot. And he we ends love up... a high-speed chase in Southern California, Seriously. He ends up, surprise, surprise, back in Iran. Right? <laughs> he takes off, goes to the one country that's not going to extradite him, Iran, again. Yeah. In the meantime, though, police have the vehicle that he abandoned. And it's got all the tracking devices. It's got this huge, like... It's got all the video connections to the video of them on his house, on Michael's house. There's like a blinking sign that's like, I committed these crimes. Yeah. So basically it's this huge link to this brutal kidnapping of Michael and Mary. And police are able to see from these devices hours and hours of surveillance, surveillance of Michael's house. Terrifying. So like there's no way they couldn't connect this guy with all this. So they start laying groundwork to get Nairi back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And they come up with this plan. They need to lure him to a country that they can extradite him from. Mm -hmm. So they tell his wife, Courtney, 
because they're still married by that point, that the equipment from the truck that Hussein abandoned was available for pickup. So come get this surveillance equipment from the truck. You can't have the truck, but you can come pick up all this equipment. Okay. So Nairi tells her, go pick it up. And when she does, the police grab her for questioning. Uh Uh-huh. Once she signs that on that line for the equipment, they're like, we need to question you. Yeah. Because they suspect that she had something to do with it. They were married. And this whole thing went down when she's living with this guy. She does know some information. But being a lawyer herself, she realizes she's in big trouble regardless. Mm -hmm. She's being charged as an accessory at that point because they want information from her. And the police call her family and get her dad involved. And she Mm. faces life in prison. Whoa. For helping with this. In the... um, involvement in the torture of Michael and Mary. Mm-hmm. So Courtney knows she needs to cooperate. Mm-hmm. And she knew that her husband and these other individuals were planning to steal Michael's money, but claimed she had no idea that they would hurt anyone or kidnap the two victims, which okay. I don't necessarily know how much I believe of that because, I mean, he could have kept her in the dark, I suppose, but I don't know. Um, police then negotiate with Courtney in exchange for her own freedom. So she pleads, she gets a plea mm-hmm. deal, no jail time for her. And she gets to keep her law license in, in exchange. She has to get her husband to come home. She has oh, to convince. Yeah. She has to convince him on the phone to meet her in Spain. Okay. Because the trip would require a layover someplace yeah. where Nayeri could be extradited. Oh, and they're thinking okay. Prague in the Czech Republic. It's a oh, perfect yeah. place to get all this done. I want to go to Prague, unrelated to this. Yes. But this process is very delicate. And she needs to convince this estranged hubby to come get romantic with her when they haven't mm-hmm. spoken in like 10 months. Right? Because she yeah. had pretty much, once she found out about all this stuff and the connection, was like, I'm done. Well, and also he just bounced and went to Iran. Exactly. Um, she manages to convince her wayward hubby um, to meet her in Spain. And they kind of play her phone conversations at a couple of places online. And she, I think, was sweating bullets because, like... Had to have been. This guy is, like, super manipulative. He's super smart. Like, you got to be, like, sweating that he's going to figure out that you're not telling the truth, right? Yeah. And suspect that you're trying to catch him. But I think that they'd had so much history that she was able to kind of work off what she'd done in the past mm-hmm. and use those cues to convince him mm. that she just wanted to spend some time with her husband who she hadn't seen in months that she loved and wanted to be with. But the night before he's supposed to leave, he isn't answering any of her calls or texts. Okay. And she gets super worried because she's like, he's just, he found out he had to have right. found out and now he's blowing all this and I'm going to go to jail. And she's super worried. And then he calls her at the last minute and says, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I slept in, you know, <gasps> I'm getting to the air, going to the airport right now. And luckily, he still makes the flight. You couldn't write that. No. Like, that was so seriously. <laughs> and it gets better. Trust me. Once he gets into Prague, though, they snatch him up and throw him in jail. Okay. And he's in one of those old school, 100 year old prisons. It's wet. It's yeah. cold. There's no hot water. The food is crap. And it's Prague, you know. Yeah. Kind of a, 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 like a German-Russian sort of gulag-type prison. Really uncomfortable. Good for him. Um, he's there for about a year, though, as they're trying to figure out how to get him extradited. That is not a fast process. No, no. And he's like, whoa, is me. I'm in this terrible prison. And you're like, dude, I feel no pity for you. 
Hate it for you. Right. And she, Courtney, his wife, had the marriage annulled <laughs> while all this yeah. is going on. And she goes Hell into hiding yeah. because she realizes that once he figures out that she had a part in this, which he clearly already did, he's going to yeah. come after her. Sure. And this is where things get even better. Nayeri finally gets extradited and they bring him back to Orange County. And get this. He escapes from a low-level <laughs> security prison. What? He had somehow managed to get a cell phone and started videotaping himself in jail. He'd also sent a birthday card to Courtney at her home. Oh, God. So clearly he knew where she was, and he had somebody helping him on the outside. And he, Like at her current home, not like her parents' home. Yeah. Where she was right then. Jesus, that's terrible. And he is clearly determined, hey, you might have got me, but I'm not staying here. Mm -mm. He had escaped with two other prisoners. He had kind of ground down this grate in his cell and videotaped the whole thing as he was escaping. Why? And you see him and he's just kind of smiling. He's super relaxed. He's like, he claims so they could show how easy it was to escape from and kind of embarrass Orange County officials. They shouldn't have had him in a, in a low security seriously. prison. But at the same time, it's like, oh my God, seriously? You see him with the thumbs up signal. And they escape by crawling through a grate in their cells. And they go up this kind of wall system onto the roof. Uh-huh. And then they crawl down, I think, by putting sheets together from the roof and escape without oh any trace. No one knows any of this happened. Somebody clearly was helping them, providing them yeah. with tools, providing them with something on the outside to get out. Like there had to have been other people involved. And it's crazy they had this cell phone and he had sent the videos from the cell phone to his attorneys and they edited it and posted it all online. What? Which is so crazy. He claims he recorded all of it kind of spontaneously and that he hadn't planned this out for very long and blah, blah, blah. But obviously he'd planned this out pretty well because somebody was helping him. There's yeah, no way he could have done like, all that. impromptu to escape from jail. No. His videos are like the ultimate taunt to police and prosecutors. Because it's clear that it's like this pretty elaborate plan that he'd made over mm-hmm. the course of weeks, if not months. And once the men were on the roof, all three of them climbed down and escaped without a trace. The police immediately began an extensive search. And there were newscasts and all kinds of stuff that were talking about this escape. I don't remember it when it actually happened, but it had to happen in 2012. I was in California by that point. Yeah, I was too. Um, any, in any case, the prosecutor... And the police and everybody are, have no idea what Hussein Nayeri is going to do. But they're afraid that he's going to come after them. I mean, yeah. And so the manhunt continues. And Nayeri and his two companions, they call a cab to uh-huh. get away from the prison and kidnap this Not, poor cab driver. Uh-huh. They put a gun to his ribs and this poor guy agrees to help them. Where'd they them. get a gun? I don't know. They ha- somebody had to have given them stuff and provided it Jesus. on the outside. They go to a motel for three nights, and they're holding this poor guy against his will. They steal a white van and kind of split it up into two vehicles. They head, they determine they're going to head to Northern California, but the group is fighting a lot internally, and they stop at this Mm -hmm. beach and take a bunch of pictures of the driver smiling and, like, having a good time. I think they probably wanted to make it seem like he wasn't there against his will. The cab driver. Yeah, the poor cab driver. So they're taking all these pictures and you see this cab driver in the back and then he's smiling and he's got his arms around them and it's just like the wildest thing. Until Nairi gets into this fight with one of his fellow escapees and this splits the group from within and the one guy takes the poor cab driver 
and drives back to the prison that they escaped from and turns himself in. <laughs> Basically, okay. Nayeri is way too scary. He's like, yeah. I would rather deal with going back to prison than dealing with this any more Nayeri. too real. Right. But in the meantime, though, <laughs> this is so bonkers. Nayeri and this other guy, they go to San Francisco. And they're still filming everything on this cell phone and posting all this stuff. And they're smoking marijuana and they're eating bananas in this stolen van. And he's like super chill and everybody's laughing and acting like they're having just like the best time in the whole world. Okay. And then Nairi steps out of the van for a moment and this homeless dude sees him. <laughs> Get this. This isn't just any ordinary homeless dude. This is a guy who's like a news junkie. And he read about Nayeri in the San Francisco Bay Chronicle and sees pictures, recognizes Nayeri, and calls the police. Nice. He's like, I'm a news junkie. I know all about this. You're going That's to jail, awesome. dude. And like totally locks it down. Recognizes this guy. He got out of the van for the briefest of moment and this homeless dude recognized him. I mean, how crazy is that? Just the That's one awesome. homeless guy who just happens to read all the papers and see all the pictures of criminals and interest in it. Um, so anyway, there's another chase, and after about eight days, Nayeri and the other escapee were brought back into custody. The, ch- the chase okay. wasn't eight days. They had been on the, on the loose after they escaped for eight days. Okay. Once the police find this van, Nayeri jumps out and tries to run away, but they catch him. Okay. So now the charges add escape and kidnapping of this taxi uh-huh. driver and tack that on to Nairi's already existing charges of kidnapping mayhem and all that other good stuff. Mm-hmm. Authorities are also filming Nairi now because they're yeah, like, this guy it. is super dangerous. And like, anytime he's out of his cell, we're going to film him and he needs to be shackled hands and feet at all times. Yeah. So they realize he's a threat. The trial begins 2019 Kyle Handley had his trial first and he was found guilty of kidnapping, torture, and mayhem. And he was sentenced to four life terms. Whoa. So they're not messing around with this. This is some very serious stuff. And the legal system took it seriously. The jury took it seriously. Four life sentences. The, excuse me, the evidence was relatively strong against Nayeri as well. Um, And they were basically trying for any kind of reasonable doubt. So I think, Mm -hmm. He realizes there's a very, very strong case against me. What I need to do is focus on making this emotional as much as possible, telling them about my past history, telling them that somebody framed me, making the jurors doubt. Because if they're not 100% certain, then you can ease in there with that reasonable doubt, and then they can't find him guilty. Right. But... In any case, he says the case was all circumstantial evidence. There was no physical proof that he was at the crime scene when these people, when Mary and Michael were kidnapped. He says the glove was planted and that he is try, just trying to plant seeds of doubt because he knows he wasn't there. Yeah, this is only only chance. Right. Courtney testifies at the trial. She was scared to face her dangerous ex. Mm-hmm the one she'd been abused by and who controlled her so thoroughly um, as she bankrolled his marijuana business. And they tried to kind of discredit her by making it sound like, can you really trust her? She lied to her parents about the money, bankrolling for the weed business and all that kind of stuff. Um, But she'd seen the instruments from the kidnapping. Right. Like the blowtorch and zip ties and all that kind of stuff. So she was a pretty good witness. And she's an attorney. So, yeah. But at the same time, Nairi's defense team claims that Courtney flipped to get a deal. So basically she's lying to save herself. I mean, of course they're going to say that. Like, they have to say that. That's 
Yeah. Like, you know, the template for being a defense attorney, right? I think they all do. But I think she came off as a very good witness. She's very reliable and very trustworthy. But she basically described Nairi as sort of this Jekyll and Hyde creature. And I could totally see it because he's an attractive guy and very charming. And I think he just had this switch where he could flip it on and off and become this brutal, angry, violent person when he wanted to. And then when he mm-hmm. wanted to be charming and manipulative, like you, you could see him in the, the trial court footage. And he just was very well-spoken, intelligent, well-dressed, very handsome guy and mm-hmm. very manipulative. Um, surprise, surprise, Nairi decides to take the stand in his own defense. Oh, my God. Like, I kind of wish you'd asked me if I thought he would. <laughs> right? <laughs> because obviously he would. He's very soft-spoken and claims that Kyle Handley was the mastermind in all of this, and he just played mm-hmm. along. Mm-hmm. He claims that he did the surveillance as a favor for a friend and that he had nothing to do with the kidnapping. <laughs> he claims okay. he was paid to spy on Michael, um, the dispensary owner. And that Kyle Hanley was the one that had all of this in his mind, came up with these mm-hmm. clues, these, this concept, this plan, and did it on his own. Nairi played the game well. <laughs> he was very manipulative. And basically he cries at certain points and just shows appropriate wow. emotion. And he spars with the prosecutor. Like It's very, very interesting to see that tension between the two of them. Um, and during the trial, Nairi seems super chill and very well controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, the court reprimands him several times, though, because he's being asked questions and he's basically deciding what he wants to and doesn't want to answer and not answering the questions directly, which kind of pisses judges off. Sure. And prosecutors. Um, this kind of sounds like, um, I don't remember which Menendez, Lyle or Eric, but one of them was, like, super manipulative of the jury. Like, he knew which jurors, like, were responding when he was crying. Like, it kind of sounds like that. And there was one juror that was, I think, particularly emotional, and he played to that. He played to it so hard. Um, In any case, the trial ends. The jury deliberates for four or five days. They're inside the jury room for a very, very long time, and evidently there was a lot of conflict and lots of emotion within that jury room, but the verdict is returned after five days of guilty. He was convicted of kidnapping and torture, but the jury was hung on the aggravated mayhem charge. Oh. Because they couldn't decide if Nayeri was the one who cut the penis off, if he was actually the cutter. So they hung on that one issue. Even so, 41-year-old Nayeri got life in prison without parole. And I read somewhere else that he got two life sentences plus seven years to life. Okay. Um, And he was sentenced November 2020. And I believe his trial for the escape and the kidnap of the taxi driver is still pending. I couldn't find anything online that talked about that it had been done. Likely it's been held up by COVID and the backlog within the court system related to that. But when he was sentenced, he like accepted no responsibility. He had no remorse. He just kind of raged against the justice system and bragged about his own personal growth. So it was really weird. And he still insisted that he was framed and he's... (laughs) basically waiting for the other sentence in an Orange County jail until they get that mm-hmm. over. There's a high, pro- a high profile one, please. Probably. There are two other accomplices that are waiting for trials as well on related issues. In but, the kidnapping or yeah. the other? Mm-hmm. In the kidnapping and escape. Um, and I, th- wait, no, I think there are two other accomplices are the ones that um, took part in the kidnapping and torture of Michael and Mary. 
two other people in addition to Kyle. Yes. Who's already been sentenced. And I oh. think that there are other people that they may have found as well that helped with the escape that are being prosecuted. Oh but right. it, it wasn't super clear. I mean, there was like three or four articles that I read about it, and it just, it, it was kind of vague. So okay. I'm assuming there are people that are going to be prosecuted for both instances because somebody had to have helped them make that escape. I mean. They couldn't have done it on their own. Yeah. But interesting, interesting case. Like That is bonkers. Like There's so like, many twists and turns on that one. It yeah. was just like, oh, my God, no, this is perfect for podcasting. Like, I don't know why, but, like, I swear when you're telling me, like, that they went out to the desert and that they're beating this, like, they're beating Michael up and all that stuff. I swear in my head I'm thinking, like, Michael has somehow set this up. This is fake. Like, this is something that, like, he's making this up for, like, merit, like, I don't know, to fool Mary for some reason or whatever. But, like, I don't, I don't know. To like, fool it just Mary? didn't seem like, real. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the purpose of that. But, like, for some, it just seemed so crazy. This poor guy. Like, I just felt so much, like, compassion for him. Like, he's just, you know, yeah. living his life, doing, you know, taking friends on trips to Vegas and just being a normal person. And he is now completely yeah. altered and damaged and traumatized for life. Like, what do you do with, you don't have a penis. Like, what the, well, they, I holy they, hell. they did a prosthetic. You could, they have prosthetics. Yeah, but still, can, can you imagine the trauma from something no. like that? Like, it's not something that you're ever going to recover from. No, I, no, absolutely not. On a, like, I, at one point, I thought you said that Nairi was Mary's boyfriend, but, like, he's unrelated no. to them at all. Like, the boyfriend no. is not in the picture at all. The boyfriend, story. yeah, he didn't give testimony. Okay. He was out of town when this whole thing went okay. down. Okay, but, I, like, I, think I just misheard. These two are just linked for life in this that horrific sucks. torture and kidnapping. God. That's an actual nightmare. Yeah. Seriously. For real. And they're in Newport Beach. Like, what? Yeah. What kind of crazy stuff like this happens in Newport Beach? I don't think it does. So I, mean, I think that's why people live in Newport Beach. One seriously. Because the they don't want to have to deal with this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think that the police and prosecutors in, in Newport Beach don't typically have to deal with this kind of Can't stuff. Can't imagine that they do. Yeah. And like part of the other thing about that too is the way that we enforce marijuana laws in this country. Because if this was a federal, if this, if marijuana was legal federally, it would be regulated and it wouldn't have come to this where they think this guy has just massive amounts of cash. Yeah. Because it would be in a bank. Right. Because it would be a average normal business which is how it should be treated yeah and that's how it's treated in the states where it's legal but you can't do business in like wells fargo yeah yeah because of it so it's crazy but yeah that's bonkers unless you have anything else to add we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up i don't know how i could add anything else to that story. no there was so many twists and turns <laughs> yeah you, just creative writing couldn't have made that stuff <laughs> no. up anymore like exhaustively in, in a bonkers yeah. bananas way yeah okay so um if you have any questions comments or concerns you can shoot us an email at the bft podcast at gmail.com darcy throw us our social media yeah we're on instagram at the bft podcast um so you can find us there we usually post pictures um show notes things like that all that good stuff is in there yeah so we would ask you guys please rate review and subscribe or follow us on social media we're cool with that yeah. too and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird wacky and wild stories good night podcast peeps stay safe keep it real and always live your very best life bye bye guys <laughs> <laughs>